name. Amen. So the book of Hebrews, in last week's introduction, I mentioned that the writer to the Hebrews is writing to people who are growing weary and weak in their faith because time has passed and persecutions have come and some of them are possibly considering going back to Judaism. One commentator suggested that even the temple was perhaps still standing and so it would have been easy for them to kind of sneak back into the old comfortable ways of their culture that they grew up in, the Judaism that they came out of. And the, the issue for the writer is that if that's the case, if it's becoming hard for them to persevere in their faith, it's because they're not looking to Jesus. They don't realize that the access to Him is still wide open. And so they basically have lost something of that revelation of Jesus that sees His supremacy, or perhaps they never had it. Which means maybe they had come into the faith without really knowing enough about who Jesus is. So the writer puts forward Christ as superior. That's what he does. He, makes, he says Christ is better than anything else. Of all the other things you can do with your life, of all the other choices you have, of all the history in your culture, Christ is better. He's not saying that the prophets were bad or that Judaism was evil, none of those things. He's saying Jesus is like the consummation or the fulfillment of everything that you've been looking for. So the writer puts forward Christ as superior to all others. He calls his hearers through exhortation and the exaltation of Christ. So he's exhorting. This letter is considered exhortational by its author. Now that should, uh, the importance of that is when we look at the letter of Hebrews, sometimes you think, well, it's full of these warnings. It's, it's characterized by repeated warnings not to abandon your faith, not to fall away. And it sounds kind of scary at times because within Hebrews chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 10, there are scriptures that, uh, you know, seem to imply that you would be able to Drift away from God and be lost completely. Lose your salvation. Wander so far off that you are lost and doomed. And so when you first look at Hebrews, maybe you don't realize it's, it's exhortational. It's actually a book of exhortation. So even when we get to the Hebrews chapter 6 or chapter 10, we're going to have to understand the reason that the author brings these warnings. And the first warning actually occurs in Hebrews chapter 2, right at the beginning of the chapter. We're going to get to that next Sunday. But the writer is really wanting to bring a kind of an exhortation by exalting Christ and bringing various warnings with the goal that believers would persevere in their faith. And in fact, the writer says in his own letter in Hebrews 13 verse 22, I appeal to you brothers... Bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. Briefly. 13 chapters, one of the longer books in the New Testament. And I said to you, you can read it in under an hour. It isn't really that long if you're very interested. And so I've read it several times because to me there was a mystery to this book and I wanted to get the heart of it, what's really going on. And so the writer is actually saying, it's an exhortation. Bear with my word of exhortation. In other words, stick with me in this. Trust me, this is going to do you good. These warnings are going to do you good. 
these pictures and ideas of Christ are going to do you good. And I want to assure you the same thing will happen as we go through this book together. It will do you good to see these pictures of Christ and to hear the warnings. We can see the desire of the writer for the hearers in the verse that I read last Sunday. Well, it's, I'll read this little passage from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 to 23. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So in verse 22 he says, let us draw near. So the way is open for every believer. It's, there's not more that needs to be done for you to come near to God. It's just Jesus that you need to see and see what He's done. And then you can draw near with boldness, with confidence. You can come into the very presence of God. And if, if you are as a believer walking in the wilderness, you should get out of the wilderness, not by a long journey through the wilderness, but immediately draw near to God through Christ Jesus. You may have backslidden. You may think there's so many things you've messed up in your life. It's not a long road back to Jesus. It is just a prayer away. That you turn your heart to your Father in heaven. Come through Jesus. The way is open. So he says, let us draw near. There's no reason for you as a believer to be sojourning in a distance from God. You can draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And then he says in verse 23 of chapter 10, let us hold fast. So these are two things that we need. We need to draw near and we need to hold fast. The Hebrews should draw near, and so should we. They should hold fast, and so should we. And the reason for all this is Jesus. That's the writer to the Hebrews puts forward Christ as the reason why we can do this and why we should do this. And today we're going to look at the first three verses of Hebrews to see how the writer begins to make this clear. The writer starts strong. He doesn't start like Paul starts his letters. If you read one of the Pauline letters, I, I love the beginning of Philippians. Um, Philippians 1 verse 1, this is how most letters start. Philippians 1 verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, there he starts. Philippians 1 verse 1, that's how you would normally write a letter if you were Paul. You would come along and you would greet, introduce who you're with, who you are, who you're writing to, as well as, you know, the saints, as well as the overseers and deacons. So he's writing to a church in uh, Philippi. But in Hebrews, it's very different. In Hebrews, we have an almost unique start to a book in the, in the New Testament, to a letter. Instead, the writer to the Hebrews begins to make his point that Christ is supreme and the only way to truly know God. The writer does this by writing a few lines that most commentators view as the most stylistically impressive piece of Greek in the entire New Testament. I'm not Greek, so unfortunately I can't 
read it to you in Greek, and you're not, probably not Greek, I shouldn't say you're not Greek, maybe there's someone Greek here, but the point is, we don't in the English translation appreciate the level of the actual use of language that is taking place in these opening verses. And so, I want to explain it to you a little bit what the guy does, and we'll read these three verses and then I'll speak about them. So Hebrews 1 verse 1 begins with no greetings, but it begins with this stylistically impressive Greek. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Now the choice of words is precise and demonstrates a kind of caliber of oratory skill that Malagasy people would expect from the most expensive Kabari speaker. Like if you buy the best guy in the country who can make the best Kabari using the perfect references to your culture and your language, then that's the level of the Greek oratory that's taking place in these three verses. When he starts long ago at many times and in many ways, the at many times and in many ways are not phrases but single Greek words that carry a kind of rhythm and and feeling and expression that they play off one another and compound the idea with some kind of majestic level of language skill. Now why is the writer doing this? Because in this book he's trying to say one massive thing, Jesus is the best. Yeah. Jesus is better. And so what he does is he starts the book using the very best Greek you can get. To show that he's speaking of that which is best, Jesus. I think it's fantastic. We don't always realize that when we start reading a book of the Bible, that actually the guy who wrote it has devoted time and energy and just to capture the idea of how great a theme we're discussing. And Christ is the theme. So, there we have it. If it was Greek, it would make more sense, but I had to explain that. We see the subject, God's Son is the final, full, and perfect revelation of God. And Jesus is described in three pictures in the verses that we just read. We just read three verses in there, you will see three pictures of Jesus. Jesus is the final prophet. Jesus is the perfect priest. Jesus is the eternal King, the reigning King who reigns for eternity. And the point I'm, I want you to understand when I say Jesus is the final prophet, he's the perfect priest and the eternal king, is that you as a Christian should relate to Jesus on those terms. As well as all the other ways you relate to him, you need to know him as the prophet, priest and king in your life that beats all other prophets, priests and kings. It's not good enough for you to say Jesus is my best friend. That worked for me when I was 10. It doesn't work for me anymore. Jesus is my friend. He has approached me with friendship. He has come to me and He has invited me into a peaceful relationship with Him. 
But to stay on terms of Jesus as my friend is to fall way short of the idea that Jesus is my king and he can command me and he can send me and he can call me and he can anoint me and he can charge me with a mission. Or the idea that Jesus is my prophet, which means I look to no other voice to hear from God, to hear who God is. I look at the word of God, I listen to the voice of Jesus. I don't need someone beyond that. You don't. You don't need a, a prophet from the church. We can have the ministry of prophecy in the New Testament church and it can edify us. But in terms of what that's bringing, it's not the prophet with a capital P in your life. It's somebody who's bringing a word of encouragement. So it's dangerous in the church when people exalt people into a place that Christ should hold. That the major voice in your life should be Jesus and not even your pastor. I only, you know, in, a, in an imperfect way, want to point you to Jesus. But I want you to find what you need in Him. And so we tend to guruize our leaders. And people put people on a platform and a pedestal and they make a ministry all revolve around a man. And they give him a big name, you know, apostle, prophet, so and so. I'm telling you, Jesus is the prophet. No other prophet compares. The other guys just prophesy, and they prophesy in part, according to 1 Corinthians. And Jesus is the perfect priest and the eternal king. I need to relate to him that way. I need to see Jesus is my priest. I need no other. I don't need somebody else to do sacrifices for me. The sacrifices that Jesus has performed are sufficient for my life beginning to end. I don't need to be the guy making the sacrifice. I don't need to sacrifice myself in a way Jesus is the, the priest and the offering. And these are some of the things we're going to learn as we go through this book. Where do we see this? Can you see these references in this passage? Let's go back there and look and see where they are. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's Hebrews 1 verse 1. So God speaks in the long ago age he spoke through prophets in these last days he has spoken to us by his son so there he is jesus is the message and the voice god's revelation to man he's taking on and fulfilling that role of the prophet you see the prophet's job was to make god known reveal god's ways reveal god's plans reveal god's character and so the prophets in the Old Testament to the Jewish people were a massively important part of their identity. The prophets were unique in a way in Israel. They had prophets from God. The rest of the world just had dumb fortune tellers that mostly got it wrong and lied to them and deceived them. And there were false prophets who were, who were prophesying things God wasn't speaking, but the real prophet was valuable because it was a gift from God and that's still the case but here we see the writer saying God spoke in the past through the prophets but now in these last days he has spoken to us by his son so Jesus is the prophet now the final prophet and it says whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power so there I see something of his authority, his majesty. Now we see the priestly reference. After making purification for sins, 
So that's what Jesus did. He functioned in a priestly mandate. He made purification for sin. So he is the final prophet, he's the perfect priest. He's done something that none of the other priests in Israel could achieve. He's done something that was so complete that he, at the end of it all, sat down. And there he sits. But where he sits is on a throne in glory at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he is the king. He is on a throne. He is the eternal king. He lives untouchable in heaven, in a sense. He's risen. He's conquered death. And Satan can't even come into his presence unless God summons him. He says, devil, come, let's talk. Otherwise, we don't talk. See, there's no competition between Jesus and the rest of the authorities. Jesus is at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. So in these three verses, we start to see out of perfect Greek grammar, we see a writer writing of something that is better in every way. And he says, Jesus is the better prophet, he is the better priest, and he is the better king. And I'm going to go in even more detail now. God spoke through the prophets. That's how long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God was revealing himself to a privileged people. Israel was chosen by God in His grace and by God's sovereign will, not because of their worth, their merit, but simply Scripture tells us in God's own words, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So that's the origin of Israel, Jacob, the father of the nations, the twelve sons, tribes of Israel. But God chose Jacob, not Esau, even though Esau was the firstborn. And the words God uses is, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Now, that sounds too strong to us in our English translation and understanding of the word hated. But it's the same when Jesus said, you should love, you should hate your father and mother if you want to follow me. He doesn't mean hate them like, I hate you. He means, I don't choose you as first in my life. I choose Jesus as first in my life. And so God's simply saying, I didn't choose Esau. I rejected him in that sense as the choice of where I would bring my revelation and disclose myself and make my covenant. I chose Jacob to make Israel. So it's a, it's a huge gift and blessing that God then gives prophets to Israel and God speaks through these prophets long ago, at many times, and in many ways. And what we, what we see in this many times and many ways is that the prophets were bringing fragments or pictures that were just glimpses of who God is. So the prophets were there to, to reveal God to Israel. Israel was chosen and God decided to make himself known to them and he blessed them by giving them prophets who would actually then, by the Spirit of God, speak for God and show Israel who God is. What a privilege amongst all the nations to be the nation that gets chosen to know God. You can't know God unless God chooses to reveal himself to you. He's, he's unreachable otherwise. Otherwise he wouldn't be God. You could grab him. You can't grab him. You can only know that he exists if he shows you and reveals himself. But what we see here is that the prophets, they received 
an idea of who God is that was limited to the word that they were given to speak. And the words that the prophets had to speak were contextually relevant. So, in a given time, in a given place, God would give a message to a prophet and that prophet would run with that message and bring it to Israel and it was a small and partial revelation of who God is or what God wants and what God is up to. See, what God can reveal is limited by our understanding. It's limited by what we're able to accept or even fathom or take. So I, can, I cannot know God in His fullness in this finite mind and this limited body. Of course I can't know the infinite God in His fullness. But I, I want to know Him more and more. And so this is why scripture becomes interesting to me. Then it's interesting to see what Isaiah saw. To learn what Hosea learned by second hand, you know, not from his, from his words, not from me actually having to live through what he lived through. Thank you, Lord. But what God can reveal is limited by understanding. Just like Jesus said in John 16 verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. So there's this idea that God is infinite. Jesus has many more things to reveal, but he couldn't even explain those things to his disciples yet. And so too with the prophets, when God spoke to Israel in a given time and context, God spoke through the events surrounding the nation or even in the events concerning the personal life of the prophet. When the writer to the Hebrews says God spoke at many times in many ways, what he's saying is that God's revelation through the prophets came in these snippets and fragments and in different demonstrations. So some of them would actually um, choreograph it. They would live it out. I don't know, mime it, lie on your side for how long did that poor prophet have to lie on his side? 300 days or something. Can you imagine just lying on one side for 300 days to make a message to the people of God? So there were many ways in which God spoke to people. He did dramatic things. And yet each time it was just a part of the revelation. It's interesting to see how again and again the prophets are characterized by like one idea. They've got this one thing they want to reveal to Israel. They've got one lesson that needs to be demonstrated in that context, in that generation. For Isaiah, he was captivated by the holiness of God. So when you start reading Isaiah, you start to learn about God's holiness. You see pictures of the, the throne room. You see um, this concern with being unclean. You see rebukes to the nation in terms of their morality. It's it's the holiness of God that's being emphasized by the life of this prophet. If you read Amos, it's completely different. If you go and read Amos, you'll hear cries for social justice. You'll hear a prophet crying out like a modern-day liberal activist. He's saying, what about the widows and the orphans? What about the foreigners? It's the, the message is social justice. Or as um, John MacArthur rightly says, justice. In other words, there shouldn't be this term social justice because justice by its nature, if it were executed correctly, would include the social sphere. So Amos is crying out for justice. Isaiah is declaring holiness. Hosea, totally different. He's lived and seen the wonder of the forgiving love of God. 
You know Hosea's story? God wants to speak to Israel's unfaithfulness and say, I won't be unfaithful to you even though you're unfaithful to me. So he says to Hosea, go pick yourself a wife who's a prostitute and then keep your marriage with her while she still sees other lovers. I'm so glad I was not Hosea. That would be pretty rough. And he lived it. And he saw from the heart of God that God is forgiving, that God is faithful, that God is a, a husband who will never, he, he will never betray you. So what we see is that when God spoke in many ways at many times to the prophets, God was revealing different glimpses of his nature, his character, his holiness, his justice, his forgiveness. I've even seen that God does this through the lives of the saints to this day. You will meet a believer who is fired up on a mission and you will think that person is made for that. They, they, they live it, they breathe it, they do it. But it's just one thing. It's one little piece. It's just this that they're called to. Like I've mentioned before, there was this um, pastor that so impressed me in my fashioned and shaped my life when I was a student. He was part of a, a team that would focus a lot on going to the nations and planting churches as their means of evangelism, take the gospel to the ends of the earth, a church in every village, every tribe, every town, every city, you know, you want churches everywhere. That guy, he could talk to the church and he could be talking about healthy marriages and telling guys how to build their family and at the end if he does an altar call, you know, it'll be like, uh, what are, you, what are you coming forward for? And you'll be like, because I want to go plant a church. See, it didn't matter that he was talking about marriage. He carried this, the theme of his life was, we should be planting churches. And so God's done that with various gifts in his church. It's always just one, it's just one thing. And it's worth celebrating. It's worth celebrating the prophets of the Old Testament. It's worth celebrating what they saw. It's worth celebrating the gifts when you meet somebody and they're passionate about this one thing. The writer to the Hebrews emphasizes that that pales, it pales, it falls way short of Jesus. Mm -hmm. That he isn't like that. That Jesus isn't the same as all those prophets. There's this God's been speaking and speaking long ago in ages past and that phrase had rich meaning for Hebrew people because they understood God's dealings in a present and a future context. The, 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 the Jews, the Hebrews that walked with Jesus, they had a strong national identity built around the law and they knew that things weren't the way they were destined to be. They knew that God was dealing with them now and that God still had many great promises that he was going to fulfill in the next age. And so they had these two ages in their thinking, this present age and the next age that's coming. And this had so much meaning for them because many of the prophecies that they'd received had a present tense meaning and a fulfillment. So they had seen prophecies that were fulfilled, but only in part. Because when they looked at those prophecies, they said these prophets like Ezekiel and Isaiah, they were, they were prophesying a future 
Israel that we haven't yet seen. So we crushed our enemies in part, but there's a king coming who will crush all of our enemies. We've had victory in part, but there's one who will sit on David's throne from David's line who will be a king forever, and he's going to reign over all the nations. And so Israel carried this eschatological hope, and the Hebrews understood God was working in an imperfect present, but one day in the future, they would see a perfect fulfillment of God's promises. And that's why Jesus' disciples, when they saw Him alive after His crucifixion, and you imagine, Jesus was alive, then He died on the cross before their eyes, and then He's alive again. So they see somebody who has overcome death itself, who's risen from the dead, who's clearly everything He claimed to be His God incarnate. He is the Son of God come to earth. He is the Savior, the Messiah, born in Bethlehem. He's the fulfillment of these eschatological hopes of Israel. And so in Acts 1 verse 6, it says, after Jesus' resurrection, they're talking and it says, so when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? There's the big question. God, are we going to become chief of the nations? Are we going to become the nation over every nation? And Jesus doesn't give them the answer. He says, it's not for you to know times or seasons, but the Father has, that the Father has fixed by His own authority. So He doesn't say it's not going to happen. He, just, he doesn't even say not now. He just says that's the wrong question and moves on. It says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses. And then in other places, Jesus had already said, the gospel will be preached in every nation, every tribe, every ethnos, and then the end will come. So the end is coming, but what's noticeable now in Hebrews is that the Old Testament Jews were looking forward to the fulfillment of many prophecies concerning Israel. They were looking forward to the age to come. And the writer to the Hebrews is using language that works off that thinking. He is saying the age of many prophets and many fragments of revelation is over. We have just entered the new age, the time of restoration. These are now the last days. These are now the last days. So, from a Jewish eschatological perspective, the writer to the Hebrews is saying we have entered the end times with the coming of Jesus. Jesus, we are now in the last days. The last days aren't over, but the last days have begun. We are in the, the age of the restoration of all things. We are in the age where God is going to redeem and take back what's been taken away by the enemy. So that's the language that's being used. In these last days, Hebrews 1 verse 2 says, In these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. So that's significant. The writer is saying we've just entered the time of restoration. These are the last days or the end times that we've begun living in because of Jesus. God has had the final word. Jesus is the final word. So He's the, the final prophet. He's the true prophet. He's the prophet that comes and speaks and He has the last word and He has spoken. God has spoken to us by His Son. 
So the idea that the writer is putting forward is both continuation of God speaking through prophets and then consummation of God speaking through Christ. No more need in a sense for the old because now we have the new. No more need for that which is in fragments and parts because we have the whole and complete. And so the, the writer starts to make reference to him being appointed heir of all things through whom also he created the world. And here's the beauty of the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. He is the creator and he is the one who will redeem and restore. And so to the Hebrews this was magnificent. The idea is Jesus was there at the beginning. The one who created, all things were created through Him. So we understand the Father created, but the agent of creation was His Son. So things were created through Christ. And now the writer to the Hebrews is saying, He is that one through whom God created, is also the one through whom God is going to redeem and restore all things. He is the beginning and the end. So he's the one through whom God made everything. He's the one through whom God is bringing everything back under his authority. The writer goes on then to remind the Hebrews who Jesus is. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Look at these words for a moment. He is the radiance of God's glory. See, Israel anticipated a Savior. They were looking for this eschatological or end times hope. They, they generally missed Jesus because instead of coming and restoring Israel then, it wasn't the time yet. They didn't think there would be a break between the advent of their Savior and the ascension of Israel. So Israel, they thought, should be led to glory over Rome. And then instead the temple got destroyed in AD 70. The sacrifices stopped. And Jesus disappeared. And I think that must be very confusing to Jewish people to this day. But actually the writer to the Hebrews understood the end times have begun. It's just not the end of the end times yet. So we understand Jesus came to inaugurate his kingdom. And when Jesus comes back, he's going to consummate his kingdom. And now in the end times, we are living between the, the start of the end and the end of the end. But we are in the end times, which means we have Jesus. Very, very strong position. And this is what Simeon saw when he saw Jesus as a baby. He saw all the way there. And I want you, at, this is part of our lead up to Christmas. I want you to think about Jesus at Christmas time. We're going to speak about him for weeks right up to Christmas. But think about what Simeon saw. In Luke 2 verse 29, Jesus as a baby is being presented at the temple. And the, the guy who has served in the temple for his whole life, Simeon, he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. So he's saying, my job is over. I've been working in this temple my whole life, but I can go now. Why? According to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles 
and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon looked at Jesus as a baby and by faith he looked into the future and he said, my work in this temple is over. I can go home in peace now. Your servant can depart in peace because my eyes have seen your salvation. The temple only existed, it was only needed for the Jews to atone for sins on a temporary basis until the perfect priest came who would atone for sins once and for all. Simeon saw him and said, this is the glory. This is the glory that we've been waiting for. This is the glory of the latter house that will surpass all the glory of the former house. So the writer to the Hebrews says, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. I want you to think about what that means. It's, think of it as a ray of sunlight is to the sun. It is the sun. When light reaches us, it came from the sun. The photons were born there in some nuclear fusion that I don't understand. You know? Nuclear scientists now. So really, this is rocket science. But the sun, when the sunlight reaches us, it is actually the same. It came from. Without the sun, there would be no ray of sunshine. So Jesus and the Father, He is the radiance of His glory. He's the, he, he's the essence of it, being revealed, being displayed, being visible, being seen. There's no ray apart from the sun. The ray is the sun come to us. You can't really look at the sun. Well, I mean, you can go try and get blinded, and that's just a star that God made. But you can't really look at the glory of God in its unveiled state in this human body physical form. But you can see the glory of God revealed in Christ Jesus. You can know the glory of His plan, the wonder of His love, the nature of His heart towards us. His salvation is seen in Christ Jesus. You can't really look at the sun, but you can see what wherever the light from the sun shines. So that's the first thing he says. Jesus is the, the radiance of the glory of God. And he is the exact imprint of God's nature. The exact imprint of God's nature. Now that reference there as a word that we get the English word character from. Character. Like we speak about letters. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I won't tell you all of them. but Each one is a character. And, and now, this says, Jesus is the exact imprint. He is the character of God's nature. He is the exact imprint. And it's a reference to a stamp and a wax seal. Have you ever seen a, a stamp and a seal? Where there's a, an engraving on the stamp, and then you get hot wax, and then you stamp the stamp into the, the wax. And then the wax cools down. And when you look at this wax, you know what the stamp is. It matches. In fact, that's what the Greek word that we get the word character from is. It's that stamp. And so the writer is saying, Jesus is the exact imprint. It's the, he is the, the character that's formed by the stamp of God. He shows us exactly who God is. You can't separate them. There is no difference. One is the same as the other. 
This, the, 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 the impression is made by the thing that, by the stamp. So it, it can't exist otherwise. It is perfect. It is exactly made by the other. So Jesus and the Father are exactly the same. When you look at Jesus, you see the Father. That's why Jesus is the better prophet. That's why his word is the final word. Because there's nothing more to say about God after you've met Jesus. There's nothing more to say about him from another prophet. There's Jesus who reveals God perfectly because he is God. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. So if you want to know God, you must know Jesus. There's no other way to truly and fully and accurately know God. Jesus is the revelation of God to man. He is the word become flesh. He is the final word, the true prophet, speaking as God to man. And I, I think about that because it, it blows my mind when I then meditate on Jesus' life in the flesh and how he lived. And I understand God, my Father in heaven, is exactly like that. Is humble, loving, faithful, working. He's everything Jesus revealed to us perfectly depicts the nature of his Father. Wow, what a great God we have. He came and he upholds, I'm nearly finished, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So there we see Jesus in his kingly and his priestly imagery. We're going to look more into that in the coming weeks. Jesus represents the fullness of everything the Hebrews have been looking for. A prophet who would reveal all of God. A priest who would take away all sin. A king who would lead his people to glory. Jesus is a true and final prophet. He not only speaks for God, he is God. Jesus is the all-powerful one who upholds the world by his power. He is the creator and the sustainer. He's the redeemer and the restorer. He's able to set right what was broken and restore shalom to creation. What the Jews were looking for, it's all found in Jesus. That's who we're saved by. And when you come to, when you come to these Scriptures, that's what you need to see. You need to see Jesus, who is better in every way. And over the coming weeks, we're going to explore different comparisons of how Jesus is better. Now we see him, prophet, priest, and king. Won't you stand? The band can come up.